Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Hsu. And I'm Corey Washington, and we're your hosts for Manifold. The Super Bowl is this coming Sunday, and our topics for today are concussions and football. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Broglio, Professor of Athletic Training of Neurology and Physical Medicine Rehabilitation at the University of Michigan. Dr. Broglio is the director of the Michigan Concussion Center and the Neurotrauma Research Laboratory, where he oversees clinical care, educational outreach, and research on concussion prevention, identification, diagnosis, management, and outcomes. His research has been supported by the National Institutes of Health, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, and the Department of Defense. Dr. Broglio was awarded the Early Career Investigator Award by the International Brain Injury Association and the Early Career Award by the National Athletic Trainers Association. And a fellowship in the American Academy of Sports Medicine and National Athletic Trainers Association. Welcome to Manifold, Dr. Broglio. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. The topic of concussions is near to my heart because I'm a serious football fan. I played football as a kid. Uh, I also care about the well-being of the players, and I'm sure that many of our listeners are in exactly the same situation. So let's begin with a couple of definitions. What is a concussion? Uh, great question. So uh, in the literature, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of about 100, 101 different definitions of concussion. Uh, I'm on a working group right now, working on 102. But I would say the most broadly used definition is a complex pathological process uh, induced by direct or indirect forces on the brain that results in a constellation or a presentation of clinical symptoms. Um, so that's pretty vague. I think it maybe the easiest way to think of it is a force directly or indirectly applied to the head uh, and then it results in some sort of clinical presentation. Typically, we see headache, nausea, fatigue, difficulty concentrating, difficulty remembering, things of that nature. How do people commonly get them? Uh, I deal pretty exclusively with sport injury, uh, but you can have concussion really from any direct force or indirect force to the head. So motor vehicle accidents, slipping on the ice, hitting your head when you fall. We have uh, a large national study now uh, in college students, so we have all sorts of interesting mechanisms that we see there. Um, we have typical uh, top bunk in the dorm. I woke up too quickly, hit my head on the ceiling. Uh, we have one case of somebody that sneezed and hit their head on a desk. There's any mechanism you can think of that, um, you know, where you have a force to the head can result in concussion. So are the results of this study out? Because I recently read something about college student concussions being far more common than you than thought. It could be coming from your it, study. It might, it's probably not our work. Um, so our, our work is called the CARE Consortium, the Concussion Assessment Research Education Consortium. It's funded by the National Collegiate Athletic Association, Department of Defense. It's primarily focusing on sport-related injury and varsity-level athletes at 30 institutions across the country. We also have the four military service academies involved. So at those institutions, we have every uh, military cadet um, is eligible to participate. So at West Point or Air Force or the Naval Academy, it's about 4,500 or so cadets that are eligible to participate um, in the study every year. So in connection with football, the thing you hear probably next in line after concussions is about CTE. Uh, and CTE stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Correct. Can you explain to us what that is and how it's diagnosed? So CTE, um, CTE is actually, if, if kind of if we look back in the literature, we kind of give a retrospective look at the literature. It was first identified around 1928 by Harrison Martland. He was a, a pathologist in uh, New Jersey, and he really described the clinical presentation of what we now think to be CTE uh, in, the, in retired boxers. Um, and so he identified memory impairment or memory issues. There was a term called punch drunk. Exactly. Right? And so he was the, so it's these memory impairments and some, uh, some uh, motor control issues. And he's the one that first came up with the term punch drunk. Maybe about 10 or 15 years after that, then uh, a kind of a maybe a better name or more scientific name was developed, dementia pugilistica. It's the same thing. It's just kind of a, a different term. And then in the 70s, the, the kind of the pathology of the, of the disease was first identified. Um, so we've gone from kind of clinical presentation in the 1928 or so, I think 1973 was this pathology was identified. Uh, and it is these uh, irregular protein deposits in the brain 
that were at the time they were associated with boxing, but nobody really understood why they were there. There was just these are former boxers; they have this issue. The, was it known to be Tao at the time? Uh, I don't. That's a good question. I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at that lap paper from '73. I just it's been quite some time since I've looked at it. Then in 2005, the first what we call modern CTE case was identified. Uh, and this is the Benedomalu in, in Pittsburgh. He was the pathologist for Allegheny County. And he, this is the autopsy of Mike Webster. And this is the, the story, the concussion movie. This is kind of what that story is based on. And that was kind of the first modern CTE case uh, where in that paper, he, he didn't directly say football caused these protein deposits and then the issues that Mike Webster was having. He just said, I had a former football player. We found these protein deposits. They may be related, but you need more study. That So that was 2005, and then that kind of spawned this modern era of research, um, largely run by the Boston University group. They've kind of been on the front of it. They've published a series of case studies. I think their most recent paper was 110 or 111 NFL participants, former, former NFL players, and they identified CTE, I think, in 110 out of the 111. And so you you commonly will hear 99% of football players, former NFL players have CTE. There's a few caveats to that. Um, so one is you can only diagnose CTE postmortem. Uh, there is no way to diagnose it in the living. So that's something I'd like to get into because I heard that there's a potential uh, diagnostic tool that can be done while you're still upright. Correct. So there are people that are working on it. There is uh, a technique called um, uh, PET imaging, positron elect uh, electronic topography. And basically what they do is they'll inject a radioactive dye into you the dye will uh, kind of cling to these protein deposits in the brain, and then you you do an imaging scan and kind of look for areas in the brain that are lighting up. It's not refined enough to be diagnostic yet, but people are working towards that. So it's it's kind of in the research stages, but my my sense is that probably within 10 to 15 years that we'll have some sort of uh, in vivo diagnostic technique for individuals. My impression of the 2005 paper is not only did it sort of direct attention at football, but it actually raised the question of how many other sports are people really subject to this risk for? For a long time, we thought it was just boxing. If you stayed away from boxing, you're okay, but it doesn't really look like that anymore. Right. So it it definitely shifted the focus off of boxing onto football, but some of the work out of Boston, they've identified CTE in, I'm trying to remember some of the cases, uh, former professional wrestlers, soccer, former soccer athletes, hockey, ice hockey athletes. I'm, I, this is not a joke. I believe there was a, a former circus clown that got shot out of a cannon. That was kind of his job. But it's this repeated force to the head that, that causes these kind of, this, this damage. And quite sadly, uh, domestic violence. People that have long histories of domestic violence, um, I think there's a couple of reported cases of that as well. This also isn't a joke, but I, I think there's a, a case allegedly where someone was a heavy metal fan, and you apparently, my wife was a death metal fan, and you spend a lot of time bang, basically rocking your head aggressively up and down that way. And this person in this case study allegedly got some kind of traumatic injury from doing that over long periods of time. So that one I don't know. I'd be interested. I could maybe dig I'll a poke around after I get back. So it's uh, a death metal. Yeah, exactly. Concussion. Death metal and CTE. Um, I have heard theory of running may cause CTE. So you can imagine like pounding on the pavement. But I, I that I am pretty dismissive of only because if that were the case, then our entire species would have CTE. I mean, we've been an upright you know, for millions of years, and we run because we had to to hunt and gather and et cetera, et cetera. And we'd all have CTE if that were the case, and we just wouldn't have survived. So the, the running one, I'm, I'm kind of, that's probably not true. Um, the death model one would be interesting. So I think you already raised a real question about how often football players get it. Because, uh, of course, this the study were set of people who actually had symptoms of CTE. And I think the real conclusion was out of 110 people with symptoms, this is how many people actually had CTE. But I was just looking at a study uh, that came out in 2019. And I think it said, um, let's see. See, in a survey of 3,500 formal NFL players, average age 53, one in eight reported serious cognitive problems. That compares to about 2% of the U.S. population. Uh, and it was more common in people who played 10 or more seasons, about 12.6% versus 5.8. Uh, risk rose with seasons played, and every five seasons of play was associated with a nearly 20% increased risk. 
Right. So uh, I I am of the belief that CTE it it is a thing. I what I don't know is what is the true incident. So I do not believe it is ninety nine percent of NFL athletes, and I place NFL athletes as the world's most at risk population. They have typically they have very long careers. If you think about starting as a, maybe a middle school or even younger, playing through high school, two three well three or four years of college, depending on how long you know they play for. Careers in the league are pretty short, but you know it's a lot of exposure over a number of years. Um, and I cannot think of another sport where uh, the number of head impacts with and without concussion is equivalent to that. Even boxing in the modern era, at least, you know they don't have they're not exposed to that many that the same volume of uh, head impacts as a football player. So, you know, I think probably this one in eight. You know, kind of just my intuitive guess is, you know, if the highest rate is probably in the 15, 20, maybe 25% range of that NFL group. Uh, and that's just my intuition. I don't, I don't have any data to back it up. Nobody has ever done an epidemiological study of NFL athletes or call it former college athletes or former high school athletes to understand what the epidemiology is of CTE. But I seriously doubt it is 99%. My, again, untutored impression is that these kind of injuries look like they're continuous it seems like you could have, you could go anywhere from having more or less a perfect brain to have a severely compromised brain and everything in between. So I'm really skeptical about having an artificial cutoff saying this person has CTE or cognitive impairment according to some definition. If it just seems like numbers of concussions increase by counts, it seems plausible that right that you could simply have a continuum of cognitive impairments in football players. In other words, choosing to count by finding the number of people who went or above a certain arbitrary threshold. So it seems that there could be risk all the way down from like one concussion. Uh, so the one thing we, I should clarify is I think the original argument um, that Amalu put forward and, and stayed around for a number of years was it was concussion that caused CTE. I think now the thinking is it is probably head impact exposure with and without concussion. Which is even more continuous, right? Because these are... Correct. Absolutely constant during football. Right. So if you look at a high school athlete, I think the average, we've done some work in this space uh, looking at just exposure to head impacts in high school athletes, and the average is about 650 impacts in a season. But the span is pretty large. It can be anything from two impacts in your place kicker, your punter, all the way up to 2,000, 2,200 on, I think we had a defensive end or something that had some crazy number of head impacts. Um, so 650 is the average, just as kind of a ballpark figure. Uh, the, the collegiate athletes are a little bit higher than that. They play longer seasons. Uh, you know, they have longer preseason. They have long, more games more uh, through the regular season. Uh, and the NFL, I have not seen any good data on the NFL to understand what their exposure is like. No one's been able to kind of capture that. And, um, but they are actually very proactive in limiting the number of contact practices per week. Um, I don't know. I can't remember what the current CBA says, but I think it's one or less practices, contact practices per week for NFL. For NFL, um, and then I think the CBA is coming up pretty pretty soon. So I, I, that may or may not change, but that was I, I know that was added into the last year. I think, as I recall, Ivy League schools um, banned uh, contact practices. So Ivy League schools, largely based on the work that Dartmouth was doing, they did ban contact practices. Um, obviously, games are games, uh, and. So some of that is injury prevention overall, um, you know, trying to reduce concussion. Uh, some of it is um, if our first string players aren't injured during the week, then we can put them on the field on Saturday and we stand a better chance of winning. This is what Dartmouth did. Um, but they, you know, I think they want, went on to uh, win the Ivy League championship that year that they implemented it and then kind of got rolled out um, on a larger scale. Interesting. Um, Only if it, after it was shown not to impair uh, win percentage. So a lot of things kind of work that way, right? Where somebody tries it and they do better or the same and then, okay, well. But not better on the same on lack of head injuries, better on the same on winning on games. On performance, correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we, you mentioned some of the positions that had higher and low levels of, con of uh, contact. So in the study I quoted, they found that kickers, punters, and quarterbacks had the fewest concussion symptoms in the NFL, followed by wide receivers, defensive backs, linemen, and tight ends. Running backs, linebackers, and special teams players had the most. So that would roughly parallel uh, the work that we did at the high school level. Um, so quarterbacks are protected during the week, so they don't get a lot of exposure during um, during practices, obviously, and even during games. They, you know, unless there's a sack or something, you know, they don't get hit that much. 
your skill players, so your receivers, your defensive backs tend to be less as far as total number of impacts. The difference being is when they get hit, they're typically going full speed. And so the magnitude of that impact is higher. But the, no, the total number is the, the, the skill players are kind of that next in line. Then you actually go to running backs, tight ends. They're kind of at the next level. And then the linemen are the ones that are every play they're making contact, typically making contact with the head, and they have the highest total exposure. So what, what you're telling me, I'm not sure which study that is, but what you're telling me tends to line up with what we see at the high school level. And Mike Webster, the first case, uh, was a lineman, as I recall. I believe. I think he was a center. I don't, I don't really remember. I think he was a center, but yes. Pittsburgh Steelers. He was a Steeler. That I know, yeah. Yeah, I think he was a center. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I do recall people learning that it's a lot of these small contacts that often can lead to problems. But but it seems like it's sort of a quantitative phenomenon, right? It, can we say that it, there are definitely many more small hits than there are large hits? But presumably, each large hit is worse than individual small hit. And so it seems like you can't simply discount these large hits because they can do severe damage. Correct. So, yeah, I think you're totally right. And so I, I don't have any science that can back up what you— I agree with what you just said. I don't have any science that can back yeah, it up. But intuitively, I would agree with you that, um, you know, a bunch of little hits, you know, and I'm just going to make up a number, maybe 10 little hits is equal to, you know, one big hit. Uh, but even little hits come you know, across the spectrum. Um, you know, we see you know, some of our data, we'll see— I think the average acceleration for a head impact at the high school level is about 25 G. Um, but, you know, that spans anything from 15 G up to, I mean, we have impact data of 100 G and there's no concussion. Wow. Or we'll see, and this is where it gets complicated from a diagnostic standpoint, um, we'll see, let's say I have 100 G impact, no concussion. You get 100 G impact, that's a concussion. Or I get 100 G impact today, no concussion, but I get an 80 G impact next week, concussion. And so, one of the challenges we've tried to understand, um, you know, from diagnostics and understanding the injury is like why clearly person to person variance makes sense. That's just we're variable. Uh, but why even me today, me tomorrow is a different metric. One theory I heard was that it partly depends on the, whether you're prepared for the hit or not. And is there evidence for that? Presumably you can brace yourself uh, if something's coming. But that's supposed to be a bad thing, actually, if you're in an auto accident. So maybe you could clarify the that. Mixed martial bit. arts would tell you the same thing. But um, the the data that we have is if you know the impact is coming, you can tighten the neck down. And um, I don't I don't want to get like too much physics with your audience, but um, no, please do. Okay, jump into it. So you you basically have a larger effective mass. So the 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 force that's being imparted upon you from the opposing player, they have to move more weight, right? So. You know, if everybody remembers Jerry Maguire, the human head weighs eight pounds, which isn't quite right. But, you know, if I can tighten my neck down and I can have my head and body function as one unit. Uh, so now, you know, the, the, you're moving, let's say, 200 pounds and not eight pounds. Um, and so the, the, That's why it's better to get hit when you're in a car than on a bicycle. Exactly. Now, when I talk about like the G's of acceleration that we've measured, this is all post-impact acceleration. So whether they brace or not, we don't know, but we're measuring what the head is doing after the impact occurs. Yeah, you can imagine mechanically you you get 100 G, but maybe the angle of exactly how your brain sloshes makes a difference, right? So right. you could have a lot of variance. Yeah, so great point. So there's a lot of uh, discussion around like what causes, what what part of the impact um, or you know what uh, causes a concussion, whether it's the linear acceleration or it's the rotational acceleration. Um, the animal model and some of the computer modeling would suggest that it's the rotational accelerations that actually causes a concussion, not so much the linear forces. But they're so tightly linked uh, one to the other that I think the correlations are like 0 0.98, 0 0.99, something like that, that we talk a lot about linear accelerations. It's just conceptually easier for um, myself included to, to handle. Your equipment, though, can actually measure the angular acceleration as well? It's an estimated one. Uh, we've pushed the manufacturers to put in. So it's a it's a six-single axis so, accelerometer. So describe, sorry, let's oh, stop. Sorry. No, 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 seriously. <laughs> stop and describe what you've got inside helmets okay, and sure. what it uh, measures. Yeah. Like. So we, uh, it, so unfortunately it's a football only system, but it, it does give us a lot of good information, but it's a six single axis accelerometer system that estimates center of mass motion. They're, they're only linear acceleration accelerometers, uh, and they then estimate rotational acceleration from that. We've tried to get them to put in gyroscopes. When the system first came out, gyroscopes were cost prohibitive. Obviously now they're not, but it's, it basically the company has said, it's just not worth our investment. Um, kind of what we think we'll get on the return. So, you know, we feel it's a reasonable estimate of, of rotational, but it's it's not perfect. So. 
Have you observed any gender differences in your studies? Because you're focusing just on football, I guess. But, you know, there's, when I, my small understanding of the literature, uh, young girls seem to be at higher risk of concussion than boys. It's probably thought that maybe because they have weaker neck muscles and so their head gets accelerated when boys doesn't. Is that total uh, BS? Yeah, that, no, it's part of it. So our national study is actually every varsity athlete at the institutions that are participating are eligible. So we have just – our overall sample is about 40% women, but at the academies because we have the cadets involved, um, which are, are very heavy male, um, it kind of brings down our overall average. But if you look at just NCAA athletes, it's basically 50-50 male-female. As far as reporting and injury rates go, if you look at um, sex-comparable sports, male-female, so soccer, basketball, baseball, softball, those, women tend to report higher rates than men. There's some discussion as to why that is. Um, some uh, is this neck musculature issue. Um, so women just don't have as much muscle mass in the neck as men do relative to head mass, so they can't stabilize as well if they know that impact is coming. There is some early data to suggest that at various points during the menstrual cycle, women may be more susceptible. And I think, so I don't, and that's fine. It's early data. I don't disagree with it. It's just not totally um, fleshed out. I think the single biggest thing is that women um, are more likely to report symptoms if they have it. So I think we've probably been all around, um, well, we're all men here. We were all 16 years old at one point, and you hide a lot of things, and particularly the culture around football and some of the other sports, it's kind of the suck it up, get it back out there. I think the culture around concussion has changed a lot in the last 10 years for the better, but it is still there. And women are just more honest in, uh, about concussion reporting, about just a lot of things are more willing to disclose um, you know, what's going on and seek medical attention. What's the range of acceleration in the case of a soccer head? Because um, you obviously don't have a helmet, so do you have any idea of how that compares to uh, football impacts? Yeah, there's some literature on this, and I'm just trying to remember the numbers. I feel like it falls into like the 30 to 50 G range. I, I don't. I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say that number because I just am not recalling exactly. The thing with soccer is that routine soccer heading is highly unlikely to cause a concussion. About 90 to 95 percent of concussions in soccer are head-to-head collisions, so two athletes going up for the same ball and then colliding heads. And then that threshold is probably the same across, you know, a male soccer player and a male football athlete, or that threshold is probably the same, which tends to hover around the like 90 to 100 range. But there's some, there's some variance around that. Is a knockout punch in boxing or MMA, is that actually due to the higher acceleration that you're imparting? Or is there something else that's involved in knocking someone out? I don't know about the, I've never seen data on the acceleration, but it's more about what part of the brain is being affected by it. So it's, you know, consciousness is housed basically in the brainstem. And so it's that, I think it's that rotational component, a real, a real big rotational component affecting the stem that, that causes it. Oh, I was going to say in MMA, there's a folk, there's some folk wisdom that when guys cut weight too aggressively and they don't fully rehydrate before the fight, that they're more susceptible to being knocked out. Does that seem plausible to you? So we've had this discussion about like dehydration status and relative to cerebral spinal fluid volume in the brain, because that acts kind of as a cushion, an internal cushion. And and I don't know the answer to this. I don't have a strong enough physiology background um, to to give you, you know, a direct answer, but to me, intuitively, it would make sense of I'm dehydrated, my cerebral spinal volume goes down, I don't have as much of a cushion, and therefore I'm more susceptible. And that may explain some of the kind of day-to-day variants that we see between people, because hydration status changes pretty quickly. I mean, even within one day, I think we all know, like, you can become dehydrated pretty quick, let alone out running on, running around on a field or something like that. So I want to come back to soccer briefly, a sport of which I know essentially nothing about. But I... I do recall a study again, and I don't know how solid it was, where they looked at uh, basically the number of heads that someone had during a season, and they correlated with cognitive performance on a, on a I think one particular metric, and they found basically a kind of linear correlation. The more, the worse you did in general. And I guess it seems consistent with the idea that it doesn't require a large hit to actually impair someone cognitively. I had a friend who played soccer. He says he, he intuitively understood, going back way back, that he should simply miss every head he tried. And he was successful. So I, I don't know that study. I can tell you, like, we've done a series of studies in football athletes where we look at preseason to postseason performance, our group as well as other groups. And the, the findings are pretty mixed. I would say the, the only consistent thing that we see um, is, well, maybe 
let's just say, uh, ability to perform a memory task preseason to postseason, that doesn't change. But you may find some uh, subclinical changes on an MRI or a DTI scan. What I would tell your audience, though, is that just because we can measure something doesn't mean it means something. And the analogy I always give is, you know, somebody may have gone to Donald's for lunch today, you eat that Big Mac, your blood lipids spike, it doesn't mean you're going to have a heart attack tonight. And so the body is incredible at kind of adapting and, and repairing. And just because that change is there doesn't mean there's, you know, anything to it that you need to worry about. But there's huge uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty right now. There's a lot of questions that we don't have answers to, but um, there's a lot of people working at it really hard to try to figure it out. So when your neighbor comes to you for advice about whether their kids should play soccer or football, say in high school, what do you say to them? I think it is a, so I would say it is a conversation for the parent and the child. And if it fits the child's personality and the kid wants to play, then I say it's fine. I think uh, I'll just give a a perfect example. My nephew, um, who is, I think he'll be 16 in a couple weeks. He wanted to play football a couple years ago, but he is, I mean, if he's five, six and he might be a hundred pounds, And my sister-in-law said, well, what do you think? And I said, I wouldn't be worried about brain injury, but I think orthopedically he's going to get destroyed. And I had a bigger concern that way. So, you know, I I think every case is, it's unique and you just have to take into consideration, you know, the child, the child's attitude, what they want to do, what else is available to the child. You know, is this just like I have a passing interest in the sport or is this a like I've wanted to be a football athlete since I was, you know, two years old and whatever. So that that's my advice. Are we seeing a decline in interest in football among families in the U.S.? That's a good question. So the the data I've seen on this is kind of mixed. I'll read uh, some data that will say like, oh, in this part of the country, it's going down. But in this other part of the country, it's the same or it's maybe going up. Um, well, like, let's, I, let's be really specific. It seems like it's tanking in the Northeast. Some of these schools are having a really hard time. And some of them just shut down their football programs right. entirely. So that, that definitely is happening. And the so, part of the country that cares most about your brain, as far as I can tell. Well, so it's, but it's not as simple as to say concussion is causing this problem because I think as all of us, probably when we were growing up, what were your sports? You had football, basketball, wrestling, baseball, maybe soccer, right? But now you can add in lacrosse to that. You can, I mean, soccer is way more mainstream. You can add in lacrosse, ice hockey. Like there's a lot of other sports that are coming online that I think, you know, give kids more opportunities to do different things other than just football. So I'm not saying concussion in those particular cases, I'm not saying concussion hasn't fed into some of that, but there's also other opportunities for student athletes. It's possible, but it's, I mean, I, I mean, look again, I'm not, I don't know exactly the motivation, but the conversation is very, very strong where I'm from in Massachusetts. I mean, people think it's often just fucking crazy to have your kid play football up there. It's just the whole tide is turned against the sport in those kind of parts of the country. Granted, we're losing population in general, so, but but it's it's the, the I'm just shocked when I go back there and I have a conversation about football and the general sense is, why would anyone do that? And I come out here and it seems like there's some mild concern, but it's a really radical difference in culture that did not exist when I was growing up. There's like one family I knew who's like far lefty. They had no TV there and they, they did not want their kid playing football, but that was it. Right. Well, I mean, Boston University is ground zero for CTE research, so that doesn't entirely surprise me. I, you know, I wonder whether, like in the Ivies, I guess, are they down to, I think we said, did we say one contact day a week? I think they're none. I think the Ivies are, are non-contact all the time. The, the NFL is one contact a week, I believe. Wow. I got to imagine most of these Ivy players, their skills probably decay while they're, in, uh, while they're in college. Like, can they actually tackle as well when they're seniors as when they were seniors in high school? With zero contact practices? Well, so I think when we say it's zero contact practice, it's it's zero contact to the ground. They still do tackling drills. Um, so Dartmouth has been actually very progressive in this space. They have um, these robots. They're like tackling dummies on wheels that are remote control. And so they will do tackling drills with these robots that are actually quite agile. I would, I would uh, encourage your viewers, listeners to, um, to go onto YouTube and just type Dartmouth tackling dummy and wow. all sorts of videos come up. Um, I'm sure Boston Dynamic will soon have a robot that actually can give you a realistic uh, run for your money. Right. 
so I think they're doing things like that, or they're just doing what are termed thud drills, where like you run a drill at half speed, or and then you just kind of wrap up, but you don't take somebody to the ground, and it you know it reduces risk for not only concussion but also for orthopedic injury. And when they, they do they practice blocking too? Like so when they when they run a play on these zero contact or low contact practices, is there no helmet to helmet between the offensive? lineman and the defensive lineman? It's, it's a good question. I don't know. I haven't been to watch any of the practices. I, I don't know the answer to that. I can ping some people I know in the in the Ivy League and, and find out after the fact, but I don't know right now. Yeah, I'm just curious because I, I don't think you can do anything really realistic in either blocking or shedding a block without having some helmet-to-helmet helmet contact. Yeah, I just don't know. I wish I did. It's interesting. This actually gets to, we're jumping a little bit ahead, but we talked about the fact that linemen are the most at risk. And I know this is heresy to serious football fans, but my sense is the best way to lower the risk of CT and lower level trauma is just to go to something like the scrum you have in rugby. Don't have, have linemen not in the four-point stance, have them standing upright, essentially grappling with each other, run plays like that. You'd eliminate a lot of this kind of initial contact. I know, look, maybe 50 years football look like this, but if you want to stop the kind of context he was talking about, which is what happens in a line you know, hundreds of times a game— you have to do something like that. It doesn't save the running back and the linebacker. <laughs> you know, you're right. You're right. But but the, the most at risk the lineman, you know. So you're right. Is that right? It, more than the linebacker so and the running back? I just want to clarify. We don't know who's at most risk. We know that yeah. linemen have the greatest exposure, but we don't know that that necessarily means they're at greatest risk. Because we don't know, you know, what outside of head impact exposure, there are likely other things yeah. that may or may not influence risk. And right? if it's this big... Uh, contact versus small contact. Linemen, linebackers have a lot of these heavy hits, right? They have heavy hits, but even, I mean, outside of the exposure, you can think, okay, what's my genetic profile? What's my physical activity like after I leave the leave the league or like retire from my sport? You know, what's my diet like? What's my environmental exposure like? There's all sorts of things that kind of feed into this. We've had lots of conversations recently around sleep. And so you can imagine linemen, you know, in the league, a lineman is Six six three third three twenty three thirty. They are massive individuals. I would venture to say a lot of them have sleep apnea, so they don't clear their brain doesn't clear out at night because of apnea, and so maybe that is kind of part of the problem that, uh, that they're struggling with. And this is all speculative. I don't have the answers to these things, but these are things that we talk about. Is like maybe these are other things that are adding in to to the effect. And so I, I just want to clarify, like, we don't actually know who's at greatest risk, but linemen do have the greatest exposure that I can, I can support. But who has the greatest risk? I don't know. I'd like to turn a little bit to actually what's happening inside your head during these hits. Do we know specifically what it is about the hits and the contact that damages your brain? Is it damage to the vasculature that then leads to blood flow being cut off, or is it actually damage to the cells themselves? So or the, the processes. Yeah. So I, I don't, this kind of gets into the neurobiology of it and it gets a little bit out of my area. So I'm going to give high level overview as I understand it. So relative to CTE, that as I understand it, within the neuron, there's a, a, you can almost think of it like a highway system as, so nutrients can move. Um, they're structured by microtubules. And those microtubules are supported, structurally supported by tau protein. So we all have tau protein in our brains naturally. It's, it's there for a good reason. What we think happens with concussion or a head impact without concussion, but at a certain magnitude, is that tau protein breaks loose, and then phosphate molecules kind of bind to it, and it becomes sticky. And then that sticky tau molecule then kind of lays down deep within the folds of the brain. So if you look at the brain, it's, you know, it's got deep crevices in it. It's deep within that fold that those tau proteins lay down. And I say that because there are a lot of other neurological disorders that have tau protein deposits, so Alzheimer's is one of them. But the way Alzheimer's lays down relative to, to CTE, it's a different pattern. So that's what makes CTE unique. So we see these tau protein deposits deep within the folds of the brain, and we also see it what we term perivascular, so around the vasculature, around the blood, ves- blood vessels that go in the brain. And so that pattern is kind of this unique process. I mentioned sleep earlier. So one of the conversations we had is, okay, if linemen have this high exposure, presumably then they have more phosphorylated towel that's floating around, but because they don't sleep well, they can't clear it out quite as well. Maybe that kind of accelerates the process. This is all just theory and kind of conversations that we have. But this kind of goes to the, it's probably more than just, I got hit in the head a bunch of times. It's other things that are going on. And this comes back to the emerging research on the value of sleep. It seems like one of the real functions of sleep is simply flushing out, essentially, 
the waste from your day's uh, brain activity. Yeah, that's my, I mean, that gets way out of my area, but yes, that's my understanding is when we rest, this, the, the brains, the glymphatic system opens up, all the waste gets flushed out, and it's kind of a restorative process that takes place. I'm curious if there's any work uh, in animal models on this. So are there any little mice that are being hit by tiny boxing gloves? Uh... Maybe not boxing gloves, but uh, Bill Meehan at, in Boston, he's done some work with this. And I don't know his work incredibly well, but people do use animal models because it's it's nice. And you can sacrifice the animal at the end of the experiment and, and look and kind of see what's going on. You know, like all animal studies, it's not a perfect one-to-one correlation with humans, but it does give us some insight as to what may be going on and kind of lead us in, in different directions or, you know, in, in inform our kind of decisions that we're making. You mentioned uh, a second ago that there was a distinction between uh, essentially the distribution of tau in Alzheimer's and CTE. But a, a few years ago, there was thought to be a link between uh, APOE4, which is the gene that gives you higher risk for Alzheimer's, and CTE. It looks like, for my just proves the literature recently that that connection looks much less clear right now. Yeah, I think it's. I think some of the early case series that the Boston University group published, I think they were looking at APOE4 status. It, it was kind of mixed. I think they've done some additional case series that they published. It's like more mixed. So it, it doesn't appear, from my understanding of it, it doesn't appear to be this direct link. Like you have this APOE4 allele and, you know, you're destined to, to go down this road. Um, so it, it may be a risk factor, but it doesn't appear to be the factor. So I'm curious now, I want to hop into a little bit of discussion of um, uh, prevention treatment, but when you watch a football game, what's going through your head having studied this intensively? What do you see that the rest of us are probably not paying attention to? Uh, I'll be quite honest. I'm not a football fan, and that's not because of what I do. I just never have been. Okay. If you're um, strapped into a chair and forced, <laughs> your eye lips are forced open, you had to look at a football game, what would you do you think you might see? I think, I mean, I, I, I enjoy it for kind of the athleticism. Uh, I mean, some of the, the ability, I mean, I'm an athletic trainer by trade, so I've spent time on a sideline and some of the things that they do, the athletes do is just incredible at the speeds that they can do it. Um, so I, I enjoy it for kind of what they can do for sport being sport. And then if there's an injury, I, I pay attention to what the medical staff is doing and more of, you know, how are they handling it? And, you know, I, I would never question what somebody's doing on, a, on the field or on the sideline from a medical standpoint, but just how are they doing it? How are they evaluating and, and looking at it that way? I, I would say I don't have a moral uh, issue with the, the sport of football. I, I think it can be improved and made safer, but I think the game of football has been made safer since the day it was started. It's evolved incredibly since, you know, early 1900s when we had deaths on the field because we didn't have helmets and all sorts of other things that were going on. And you don't, you know, and that was from subdural hematomas and skull fractures. And we don't have that anymore because we invented the helmet and we got rid of the, the flying wedge. And so the game will evolve as the game has always evolved. Uh, but we need sound science to make informed decisions to, to make that happen. Well, you know, Corey, uh you know, you're always on me for why I don't like the NFL. I, so I used to watch both college and pro football, but now I can't be bothered to watch pro football, but I still like college football. And one factor, it's not the main factor, but one factor is when it's the NFL, it's older guys. And when I see the collisions and the hits they're taking, I, I do think about the health impacts for those guys later on in their life. It's a little easier to ignore that when they're 18 year old kids. But that is one of the reasons why I just don't like watching the NFL that much. That's incredibly honest, Steve. It's sort of your kind of denial accounts for your love of college football. You mean denial that the younger guys are getting injured? Yeah, and that's going to last longer, yeah, because they've got longer lives ahead of them. Well, I don't know, actually. Maybe maybe the guys who play college and then don't make it in the pros, maybe their probability of having these problem, brain problems later in life is not that high, right? It, it probably isn't. That's right. Yeah, so only only some small fraction of the guys playing on the college game are probably destined to have this problem, right? Whereas in the NFL, it's much a much higher percentage. Yeah, although it's quite it's kind of a pyrrhic victory in some way because these guys are sacrificing. They have some risk to their brain and their bodies, although they're probably not get the going to get the payoff that guys who actually made it in the NFL are going to get. No, they still get the glory of playing for you know their college, no, college team. Okay. Anyway, I just I these older guys where you, you know like some of the players in the NFL are getting you know I don't I don't care about quarterbacks because they're not really that much in the line of fire, but. Even some of the linebackers and running backs, they can be pretty older guys. And then I think like, man, this guy's getting killed out there. 
Yeah, I don't know if you saw the Marshawn Lynch press conference. Yeah, where he retired or almost retired. Well, he or... he, re- he retired and then he came back. We recently gave a little press conference about basically protecting your brain and your body uh, long term. Right. It's not clear how you do right. this, actually. We suggested the guy should do this. You know, he's he's got diversified himself economically pretty early on. He owns a bunch of different businesses. But uh, uh, yeah, well, he's an older guy. And I think he's really, really, I don't want to say he's kind of cold-blooded about it. I think he sees that there are obvious risks, but he's going to maximize his benefits from it. And then, you know, presumably probably get out after this year. We'll see. So I think if I think, you know, when I talk to former players, um, you know, there are certainly some that would say I would never do it again. I have orthopedic issues. I feel like I have cognitive issues. I mean, these are, you know, they're retired, but they're still, you know, I'm trying to think the people I've talked to in their 30s and 40s and aren't really showing anything. But they have concerns, but they're not showing anything. But I would say broadly, the the former players I've talked to, they would say I would do it again in a heartbeat. And if I get it, I get it. And if I don't, I don't. You know, my take on it is, you know, you you enter college and you're 18 years old and you're an adult and you can make that decision, particularly in the modern era. I think it's disclosed. Nobody's hiding anything anymore and they can make that decision. And it's up to them at that point what they want to do. The way I view this is your life is kind of a, a curve, basically. And you can live life the way I do, which is you have a kind of long curve. You don't get very far above the axis, you're just above zero for a very long time, very safe, fairly boring life, right? That's, you know, people may prefer that life. That's life I've kind of lived. Or you can kind of go for this life where you shoot way up and run out of a stadium with 60,000 people screaming at you. Maybe a shorter life, you may have physical problems afterwards, but man, it's exciting while it lasts. And who's to say, right? Yeah, who's to judge, right? Who's to judge? But the, the one thing I would say is people should be informed of the, of the risks, right? If, if we know them, right? Yeah, I mean, I fully, uh, you know, I, I think the, the league in particular, I think they were in denial mode. I think there's some, some question around some of the science that they were publishing in the late 90s, early 2000s. I would say that after that group of scientists kind of got dismissed and it got, that committee got reformed, I would say of the professional organizations, the NFL has been the most proactive. They donate the most money for research, and they they are trying things in an informed way, right? So, you know, changing kickoff rules and, and trying to work with the athletes with, you know, one contact practice a week and things like that. There are other, I don't, I don't want to get into, you know, nitty gritty here, but there are other sports where there are parts of the game that have nothing to do with the game that causes brain injury. You know, there, there are very easy things that could be removed or altered from other sports that would make it a lot safer. And it's still in there probably for just pure entertainment. So I want to talk a little bit about what's happened in football the last couple of years to try to make it safer. So helmets are better, but I don't know how. Can you can you explain to us the ways in which helmets have changed? Sure. So, I mean, I think we all know the original helmets were leather. They were implemented in the, I think, in the 30s. I think in one year there were 13 or 14, this is in the 20s, there were 13 or 14 on-field deaths from skull fracture and bleeds. Teddy Roosevelt at the time got the Ivy League presidents together and said, figure out a way to fix this or I'm banning the game. And that, that group, that commission, uh, actually eventually is what became the NCAA uh, to protect student-athletes. So the leather helmet was invented, I think, shortly after World War II. We had kind of the suspension style. Plastics were coming around, so we had the hard shell. You actually see an increase in, in C-spine injury at that point because you could go in headfirst with a hard shell helmet. Then we got headfirst contact got eliminated or head-down contact got eliminated. And so... When was that? Uh, I, I want to say in the 70s. I don't remember the exact time that the rule change went in. And then we start adding more and more padding. Like So the original hard shell helmets were kind of the suspension, like canvas straps on the inside suspension system. And then we start adding more and more padding. And then, uh, so I should say that as we moved into the hard shell helmets, they were really designed to prevent skull fracture because that was the initial on-field problem. Then as we move in kind of to the modern era of concussion, so this is around 2005 with the Omalu paper, concussion became an issue and people started worrying about concussion and can we build a better helmet that is concussion resistant so some people think we can build a concussion proof helmet i kind of disagree with that but that's another argument it's a massive exactly it's it wouldn't be a practical solution and so then uh, i'm trying to remember what year but the the virginia tech group started testing helmets for kind of concussion resistance 
and they published it. They made it. They made the data public. Uh, you can go to their their website if you just type in Virginia Tech Star uh, or Star Helmet. It will. You can anybody can pull up these ratings for football helmets. Uh, they have hockey helmets, bicycle helmets. I think they have lacrosse helmets. I'm not positive about that. And mom and dad that need to buy a helmet for their son that wants to play football, you can see the top rated concussion helmet uh, and get a price. And you can make a decision as to what helmet to buy. Because of the advent of, of that rating system, the companies now want to be the top. And so they have invested the dollars to improve their technology to, um, to basically get better and better in the ratings. But that is driving improved helmet technology and, and concussion resistance. Has anybody tried like a very big, soft helmet, like, you know, quite a bit thicker than a regular helmet, but like very soft material? It seems like that would that would eliminate that would absorb a lot of the energy. Right. So one of the challenges with football helmets is one, you need durability and that's durability across a season. But that's even durability within a game. I mean, so for a while, I think somebody came out with a carbon fiber shell helmet. But as you can imagine, carbon fibers is relatively fragile. It cracks, and so it just doesn't last. And obviously, it's crazy expensive. And then but the other—it's a, a billion-dollar business, right? How much would they lose? Well, it's a billion-dollar business for the NFL, but it's not for your local high school. But why isn't the NFL using it? I—I I don't think. I think. I mean, they were talking, you know, two or three helmets a game type of situation, and it just—they could afford that. Could well, that. <laughs> so I don't know where it went. I know that they were talking about it. I don't know where it went. So. Uh, and so you have this durability issue, you have temperature issues, right? Cause you start in August when it's 95 out and then you end in November and it might be 30 out or even colder in some parts of the country. And then, uh, you know, so there's a lot more than just kind of, you know, put a giant pillow around their head, you know, like soft materials are great, but they have to be able to rebound basically instantly because the next impact may be milliseconds away. Right. So there's all sorts of challenges that go into it. It's, it's, uh, I've gotten some very interesting emails from people saying like, I've solved the problem. And you take one look and you're like, that'll never work on a field. <laughs> you remember, honestly, this is a huge digression, but there's a longstanding math problem called uh, Fermat's Last Theorem. And uh, people would write into this journal when they had a solution to it. And the journal editors simply had a, a set of pre-written cards saying, thank you for your submission regarding the proof of Fermat's Last Theorem. You'll find an error on line X, and they'd type in the number to send it right back. You could do this for all your suggestions. I like that. There you go. <laughs> How about changes in the game? Because there have been a number over the past couple of years to avoid, try to diminish context. One is uh, you can't hit a defenseless player. Another is that they're now having uh, kickoffs if their touchbacks go back to the 25-yard line to discourage people from running things out of the end zone. I'm curious, do you think that, that these might have significant effects on concussion, or is this and from Europe, I know it's a subjective, right? Do you just eliminate the kickoff? Yeah, there's a lot of conversation around the kickoff. So kickoff and punt are the most dangerous plays during the game, right? Because you basically have everybody running full speed. You know, I think some of the players will describe it as like it's a, it's a car crash, it's a train wreck, you know, that type of thing. And so I think the, the leagues move to, to move the kickoff line, well, to move the kickoff line and then to move kind of the touchback distance. I think they were trying to reduce uh, risk. I think it's it gets very tricky because while they are making these rules changes, and my gut tells me likely they are reducing risk, the willingness of players to report injury is increasing, right? It's not an injury that, that, that they're less willing to hide. So Carson Wentz is like a perfect example of this, right? Like it's a playoff game, and he very easily could have hid that injury and kept going, but he chose to report it and got pulled from the game and may have cost the Eagles the game. Don't know. Hard to say like how that would have gone. But Edelman looked have. like he hid one in the uh, game against the Falcons. Right. You know, so I think reporting rates are going up and I, I encourage that. I think that's a good thing. But trying to understand, okay, we've put this new rule in place, which reduces risk, but simultaneously with that, our athletes are feeling more comfortable with reporting injury. It's it, The data get pretty pretty fuzzy. I don't think changing the kickoff rule has hurt the game at all. Um, and I don't think it has put players at greater risk. So I, I have no issue with it. I've long been a proponent of, like we talked about, you talked about the def hitting the defenseless player. When that happens, just making the fines so incredibly severe that it will never happen again. And I think that while you couldn't put a financial fine on a college athlete or a high school athlete, then you can start taxing gameplay, right? I mean, so players can get ejected for that game, but what if we change it to you get ejected for that game and the next two? Right. And same thing with high school. And all of that could be done. 
and I think it is it would be a massive deterrent, at least for the intentional things. So some of the unintentional stuff, it gets it happens fast. These guys move very quickly, and things happen in a split second. And sometimes, you know, the the physical body is in motion, and you just can't change that direction in time. Um, so there's going to be some subjectivity to it, and there's going to be mistakes from the officials uh, if they were to go down that road. But I think ultimately, if we want to protect the athlete's health, that may be something we want to consider. Seems like the Ohio State Clemson game, where I think the Ohio State D back got ejected, which for what I thought was like, you know, unintentional. I mean, came in with the crown, but it was pretty clean and unintentional, and he just got ejected. It seemed like, you know, that could have cost Ohio State the national championship. So. Yeah, it, it's always difficult. I mean, I think I've seen, I, I'm trying to remember that one in particular, and it's not coming to mind, but I know I've seen other places, other times where. The offensive player will catch the ball. The defensive player is coming in and sees the defensive player coming, and they kind of tighten down and they almost yep. lower themselves into the line of fire. Um, yeah. And then you know the penalty goes to the defensive player. So you know, and that's where the subjectivity I think is. It, it, there's going to be mistakes there until we can figure out a way to make it fully objective. But I think ultimately, I think it will. Re, you know, in, in my idea, somebody may say, "Well, like, that's ridiculous because," and it's something I haven't thought of. But if we go down this road. Um, you know, I think it's a way that we can and try to reduce uh, at least the intentional ones. So, Corey, what's what's the future of football? You know, many people predicted that it's going to become less and less popular, just as boxing has. Although, of course, boxing has metastasized into all this other stuff like MMA. So it's hard to. I, although I think if you aggregate all these kind of sports, they're probably less popular than boxing was at its peak. But I would assume that it would probably become less popular over time. You know, you know, I go back and forth. I, I can't tell whether I'm a fan or an addict, but like I'll I'll like pledge myself not to watch this sport and then I'll end up giving in like week five. And so I assume there's some people actually strong enough to resist. Uh, but they've got to change, right? I think some of the changes should be a little more dramatic, but but that just may be wishful thinking on my part. Do they do they have to change? I mean maybe that once we know the science and the risk, maybe people will just say, like, if these players want to take the risk, they're highly compensated. Let them let them play. Maybe that maybe it'll go that way. It could definitely. I think I think it may be wishful thinking. I mean, not that I really have a certain stake in this, but yeah, you're right. Look, NFL is incredibly profitable, and it may be as profitable as ever. So, uh, although you know, I think these parts, certain parts of the country are uh, turning on football. The rest of the country is not, and they're expanding across borders. So. Yeah, maybe it'll just be something that people uh, allow there's a certain risk to and uh, will enjoy the game and enjoy watching people uh, take it. Do, do you actually watch full games? Like, are you actually like sitting on a couch for three hours? No. So what happened? Do, do you really want to know? Well, kind of, because I, I, yeah, I'm curious because I can't, I can't justify the time. So even like the college games that I care about, I'll just watch, I'll watch the highlights after the game or something. So <laughs> I, I generally only watch New England Patriots games because I'm a single team sports fan. I have about one team in all of sports. It's the Patriots. And then what I'll typically do is I will wait to see whether they win the game or not. If they win the game, I will watch the game. Uh, sometimes a whole, but mostly in condensed version on the NFL app. Do you TiVo it? Or, oh, the NFL app. Yeah, they have a condensed version where they cut out all the other stuff in the last 45 minutes. Do you pay for that? The whole thing, yeah, the app cost me to see all the NFL games across the year. It's uh, 100 bucks. Wow. Um, but what's interesting is since they got ejected or since they lost early on in this playoffs, I've been shocked because I've actually, if it's the first time in 10 years, I've actually enjoyed the playoffs. Playoffs are usually so stressful for me. I actually don't <laughs> enjoy the games, but I've actually been, I've watched other teams. They're fabulous to see. I've been able to chill a little bit. And I've been like, it's like open up a world where it's all, before it's been like just, you know, knuckles to the edge, you know, trying to hope the Patriots get through this. Have you ever analyzed why you care so much? No, it's totally crazy. There's like it makes no sense at all. I mean, I I I identify with Tom Brady, and that just makes no sense, right? This guy, he I mean, I have no connection to him, right? He lives in a like a different universe from me, but yet somehow, through some kind of animalistic tribal thing, the fact he he plays for a town that I lived ninety miles from growing up, uh, although he seems to he's from California, who knows what he's like. Somehow, I've deeply it's been imprinted on me that I'm attached to this. But you were a Patriots fan before he showed up. Yeah, yeah. I was, I, mean, I, was, I was a Patriots fan through all the rough years. Right? I, I sat, I was there when they got blown up 45 to 10 by the Bears in 86. I was in Nicaragua listening on Armed Forces Radio when that happened. I listened to the whole thing. Super Bowl shuffle. Yeah, it was, it was bad news. 
I think you're a Brady fan because wow. he's a Michigan grad. I think that's, that's right. That's uh, so. I have to say, it, <laughs> in every part of the country, the Patriots are the most hated team in sports. But this is one of the few areas where you can actually covertly be a Patriots fan. I've said, I've said, look, wearing a Patriots hat around here is kind of like wearing a MAGA hat. That you have the same kind of reaction to it. Like I had one my dad sent me, and I worked for like a day, and I'll never take that thing out again. You just get this real, real kind of negative vibe, even here. <laughs> but so let's turn we're, we're almost at the end of our time I'd like to sure. come to uh, treatment because that's mm-hmm. something on which I think there's been a fair amount of change so I can't remember before they just told you to sit in a dark room and now they take a more proactive approach I should say that I mean you actually since you're in this field yeah no I, you, you've pretty much summarized it um, I don't think I have anything else to add no um, yeah so certainly probably 10 years or so ago um, you know the, the recommendation was kind of this idea of cocoon therapy so totally shut somebody down dark room no computers no TV no texting no nothing uh, the idea being is you you wanted the body or the brain to have full access to everything it had so it could kind of recover and what turned out to happen was that when you isolate somebody, uh, then you actually start to increase symptoms that are unrelated to the con- to the concussion. And particularly if you have a student athlete who is falling behind with school, particularly like a type A student athlete, um, you know, they're falling behind with school, they feel excluded from their team, you know, they get all of these kind of symptoms that are associated with isolation and not related to the concussion. So as the concussion symptoms come down, these isolation symptoms go up and then disentangling that as a clinician becomes crazy hard. And so what we realized is that if you allow people to kind of do activities of daily living, right, so just go and participate in the things that you do, so long as it doesn't make symptoms worse, right, that was a way to kind of avoid some of these isolation issues. That then started spiraling into, I shouldn't say spiraling, but started growing into what we now term as active rehab. So this idea of, okay, so probably for the first 48 hours, like don't do any physical activity, just rest, like almost like you sprain your ankle, like you're not going to go out and run the next day. But maybe around day three, like let's go for a light walk and let's see how you go. And then day four, okay, maybe we're going to go for a longer walk or maybe it's kind of a, a really light jog um, or maybe a, a exercise bike is a better example where you're not bouncing. And so people are really starting to experiment with kind of early exercise interventions as a way to um, accelerate the healing process. And if you think about it, we do this with orthopedic injuries all the time, right? If somebody has an ankle sprain, you don't just say like, go sit on the couch and do nothing for the next two weeks and it'll get magically get better by itself. It will get better, but we know that if you exercise and move it, it will get better faster. Um, And so we're starting to work with that. And there's some really creative work. Um, John Letty, who's at Buffalo, he's kind of been at the forefront of this for 10 years or so. And John, a registered Mihalik at North Carolina, she's she's doing some really cool stuff where she does physical activity combined with cognitive tasks. So she'll have people on an exercise bike doing math problems or doing like memory tasks and things like that. So she's really starting to kind of push the envelope with it um, and trying to get people back you know, faster, but in a safe way. It's, it's not all about just speed. It's about, but it's also kind of doing this in a safe way. The other thing that has happened in, in over the last 10 years is there's been this standardized return to play protocol. And this is a five or six step process where over time, once the athlete can get through a full day of school and they can go for a jog, as we start to ramp up their kind of sports specific activity. So you can imagine with soccer, it starts off with some dribbling and then it's some passing. And then maybe we do some controlled heading and then we do a controlled practice and then we do an unrestricted practice and we're like, okay, you're ready to go. And we have some work from the care consortium study that I helped lead where that alone, that extra five or six days of recovery time in that slow ramping back into the sport actually reduces the risk of um, same season uh, repeat injury. It takes it to almost zero. And, and we, have, we were able to compare directly with some uh, historical data from the early 2000s to the modern era. And it's, it's pretty cool to see kind of how these things have really um, improved the safety of the athletes once they get back out there. It sounds like this, uh, I mean, this research I sense is very, very new because I, I had a friend who had a, she, she was hit by a car maybe three years ago, and she wasn't quite told to stay in a dark room, but she was basically told to like stop almost all of her activities, don't go to work, don't be very, very active. And so it sounds like she was still a little bit under that general sense of really, really reduce your activity. So this hasn't quite 
spread out, or if it's spread out, spread out very, very recently. Yeah, it, it's it's probably not mainstream yet. And so one of the things at the Concussion Center at Michigan, like we're really pushing our outreach efforts because we want to make sure that this this type of information, amongst other things that we're doing, it gets pushed out. And, and so the clinicians, the physicians, the nurses, the athletic trainers, the physical therapists, so they have access to cutting edge uh, information and they can help your friend or they can help somebody's child that has an injury because it's moving fast. Uh, I mean, you you quoted a couple studies today that I was like, oh, I got to go back and look. I don't remember. I haven't heard of that one. You know, and I'm in this, this is what I do all day, every day. And even I can't keep up with everything that's coming out so fast. So when you think of a primary care physician where concussion is just one sliver of what they do, uh, it even gets harder for them. So we want to, we're, we're doing the best we can to get the information out there. Steve Shu, any other questions? No, it's been uh, great chatting with you. I'm sorry uh, I wasn't in the uh, in the in the room to meet you in person. Well, I I enjoyed it thoroughly. I'm glad you're able to uh, dial in and chat with us. Steve Broglio, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.